In the last century, and arguably one of the greatest Talmudists of the past 500 years lived, if you were married, or if you are soon to be married, uh, you probably know his name. And that is because when it came time for you to choose the text of your ketubah, maybe I or some other rabbi probably told you that you had the option to get the one with the Lieberman clause. Imagine that for a moment. There's this 2,200-year-old document, and this man who lived not 100 years ago manages to have his name added to it. His name was Shoah Lieberman. He grew up in Eastern Europe. As a child, he was an Eloy, a child prodigy. And he grew up into being a genius. And by a young age, he had proven that he had memorized the entire Talmud, all 63 volumes, about 5 million words, 2,711 pages. And the story that is told about Lieberman, of a student who he bumps into years later at the Jewish Theological Seminary, some 20 years after he graduates. And Lieberman says to him, what brings you back here? And the student says to him, I came here because I'm completing my PhD. And Lieberman says, and what did you do your work in? And the student says, I did it in the Bible. And Lieberman says, such a small book. After all, the Torah is only 300,000 letters, a little less than 80,000 words. And yet it has so much to tell us. This past week, an old friend of mine, himself an Ethiopian Jew, sent me the picture of the arrival of 181 Ethiopians who came this week to Israel with the word mitmashech, which in Hebrew means it's still happening. They were part of a project over the past six months of bringing 3,000 people who have arrived, effectively taking whatever remained of the Jewish community there over to Israel. We think we know truths, and we do. But there are truths that need to be repeated over and over again because we not only forget them, but even worse, we take them for granted. And one of the most remarkable truths is the State of Israel was founded not merely to establish a Jewish homeland and protect its citizens within its borders, but the other truth is Israel has a mission to all the Jews in the world. Now the story of those Ethiopians who stayed behind always seemed less compelling than those who chose to leave. Because those who were chosen to leave also chose to brave the long, arduous, frightening march out of Ethiopia into southern Sudan in the face of marauders and rapists and murderers and disease and thirst and hunger. In 1999, when they did that, they deserved our attention. But every abandoned Jewish community in the world always seems to have a few that stay behind. We call them, in Hebrew there's a word, they're called kapturim, which means switches. As in they're the ones who are left behind because they will be the last ones to turn the switches of the lights off. But those Ethiopians and the remnants of the separated families and relations came to Israel because they faced ever greater persecution outside there in Ethiopia. Now in 2014, when Russia invaded the Ukraine for the first time, the Russian-backed rebels took over Donetsk and controlled the airport. When word of this reached Israel, they organized a clandestine evacuation 
of hundreds of Jewish families over back roads, night convoys, flights from one city to another before bringing them over to Israel. They did this for the same reason why they did it for the Ethiopians. Because they know all too well that when a society disintegrates, that the Jews suffer first and worst. This, of course, has played itself out over again this year, that whatever strength was left of the post-World War II Ukrainian Jewish community is now forever gone, with nearly 20,000 Ukrainian Jews in Israel. The only ones left there are the switches. The same is true for a little piece of seldom appreciated history amongst European Jews. But by no means is it less painful. This past week marked, marked what was known as the Farhud, or the beginning of the mass expulsion of Jews from Arab lands. In 1948, murderous pogroms exploded throughout the Middle East and Arab countries, leading to the exodus of nearly a million indigenous Jewish Arabs out of their countries from Arab countries like Morocco to Iraq and everywhere in between. Some of those communities dated back to more than 2,600 years ago, and in an instant they vanished, except for the few who remained behind. For the many, they had no money or the ability to get out, and so it was the fledgling state of Israel who set up operation centers in Turkey and in Malta and in Cyprus to rescue them. And they did this all at the same time that they were bringing in refugees from the displaced person camps after the Shoah. And at the same time, they were assembling an army and arming themselves for the eventual invasion of the Arab armies in 1948. All in the same year. And I thought of this because this past week I read that the chief rabbi of Moscow, Pinchas Goldschmidt, had left Moscow on some official business about eight weeks ago, and he is now officially working in exile because he had come under pressure by the Russian authorities because he refused to support the war in the Ukraine. And where did Pinchas Goldschmidt go for refuge? Israel. To understand how remarkable this is, as to how unprecedented this is in Jewish history, you do not have to look far back at all. Walk through Yad Vashem's Garden of the Righteous and ask yourself, why did all those Jews in Europe have to rely on the kindness and sacrifice of their non-Jewish neighbors for protection and survival? The story is, stories, excuse me, Averi and Fry and Oskar Schindler and Irene Sendlerova are rightly inspiring to us and moving, but were also necessary because the Jews had nowhere else to go. They had no refuge. That in Europe, there was no rescue coming for them, and everywhere there was a door, it was a door without a handle. But perhaps it is the story about Walter Benjamin that tells the story best. Walter Benjamin was born to a wealthy, assimilated German-Jewish family in the late 1800s. His father was a prominent banker. His uncle was William Stern, who founded the concept of the IQ. He himself would develop into 
an eclectic intellect, highly respected as an historian, philosopher, and art critic. While in university, he began to discover about Judaism and Zionism, but because he was such a proud German citizen, he declared his belief that Jewish ideas alone would create a unique and safe place for Jews to live in. He called it cultural Zionism, and that Jews didn't need a physical space in which to live. As the politics of Germany began to turn against the Jews, Walter Benjamin escaped to Spain. And when that turned fascist, he escaped to Paris. And when Paris fell into the Vichy government, he escaped to southern France. It was there that he obtained a visa to the United States. But in order to use that visa, he needed a French transit visa, which he got to. On the day Walter Benjamin was supposed to leave, as a result of pressure from the German authorities, all of the transit visas were canceled. That morning, facing the train station he was supposed to have left, Walter Benjamin committed suicide. Which is to say that Walter Benjamin certainly realized that his earlier theory was very wrong, that ideas are not enough. Jews need space. As I said earlier, if the great Talmudist Shoal Lieberman was right, you know about the Bible being such a small book, which it is compared to the Talmud, that certainly cannot be said of the letters, words, and books that were written about it and for it. One such school of books was an entire enterprise of translating the Torah into a language that people who didn't understand Hebrew could easily open it up and read it and learn it. The project that is most well known is when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, which opened the door for millions of Greek-speaking Jews and non-Jews to begin to learn it and understand it. But in fact, a few hundred years before, the project of translating it was into Aramaic, which was the Yiddish of the ancient Jewish world. The person responsible for that project was a Roman convert to Judaism named Aquilin, whose name in Hebrew was transposed as Unculus, better known to Jewish students throughout the world as Uncle Lewis. His translation is the gold standard par excellence. The opening of the Torah portion for this morning describes the naming and accounting of all the tribes in the desert with the word, the opening word is Naso. Most translations translate the word Naso as meaning to count, count all the tribes. But Unculus doesn't translate the word Naso as to count. Unculus translates the word as in take, as in take them all in. All the Jews in the desert all those who wander, leave no one behind. During the 1973 Yom Kippur War that nearly destroyed Israel, then Prime Minister Golda Meir visited the troops at the front and she was asked to all the troops that are there, she said, is there anyone who would like to ask me something? And one of them raised his hand, his face there's actually a picture of it. His face was caked in basalt, in dark basalt from the tank battles. And you could only see the whites of his eyes. 
And he says, I have a question. He said, my father was killed in the war in 48. And we won that war. And my uncle was killed in the war of 56, and we won that war too. And my brother lost an, an arm in the 67 war, and we won that. And last week I lost my best friend, and we will win this war too. But is our sacrifice worth it? And this is what she answered him. She said, in 1948, I was sent to Moscow as the first ambassador of Israel to the Soviet Union. And Stalinism was at its height. Jews had no rights as Jews because Stalin had proclaimed war against Judaism. Zionism was a crime. Hebrew was banned. Torah study, study excuse me, was banned. You could be sent to a gulag or to Siberia for far less. Our first Shabbat, I arrived in Moscow. I went to services at the great synagogue there, and it was practically empty. But the news of our arrival in Moscow spread quickly so that the next Shabbat when I went, the street in front of the shul was jam-packed. Close to 50,000 people were waiting for us, old people and teenagers, babies in their parents' arms, even men in, in army uniforms. Despite all the risks, despite all the official threats to stay away, these Jews had come out from everywhere to demonstrate their kinship with us. And inside the shul, she said, it was the exact same. Without speeches or parades, the Jews were showing their love for Israel and the Jewish people. And she said, I was the symbol. I prayed with them that morning, and the people at the end surged around me, stretching their hands and crying out, Shalom Aleichem Golda, welcome Golda. Golda, Leben Zotsu. Golda, you should have a long life. And all I could think over and over to say to them was, I thank you for remaining Jews. And then they cried back and said, We thank the state of Israel. And Golda finished the story by telling the soldiers, that is how I know the sacrifice is worth it. It was true then. And this past week, we read again just how true it continues to be. Shabbat Shalom.